The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Welcome everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. And thanks, Alex, for joining us. Some of you might know Alex already, but uh, he's uh, been a friend of the center for a while. Um, after graduating from Carleton College, Alex went to Asia and worked and traveled, both in China and Tibet and lots of other places, and came back in 2005, got his law degree and MBA from the University of Minnesota. And while a gradu- graduate student, he started the Student Mindfulness Club. We've had a number of students from the U of M come who have participated in that very wonderful group, and a number of us have gone to meet sessions from time to time. Um, and uh, more recently, since uh, graduating with his law degree and his MBA, he's been working, but also has done the Community Dharma Leaders Program sponsored by Spirit Rock Meditation Center, and uh, is going to be starting the teacher training program sponsored by IMS and Spirit Rock uh, later this winter. And uh, Alex continues to practice law and business accounts and uh, working with, he says, startups, mid-sized companies, and Fortune 500 companies. So if anybody's interested, <laughs> to do that in a mindful way, that sounds like a, a good plan. And uh, Alex continues also to work with some of the colleges in town and other groups uh, of young adults interested in the practice of mindfulness. And uh, it's also going to be doing some work with the Center for Spirituality and Healing at the U of M. And tonight, Alex is talking on the practice of surrender, path, and parenting. So thanks again, Alex, for being here. Thank you, Mark. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here. So um, tonight, um, as the topic uh, implies, we're talking about surrender. And uh, there's two aspects uh, of the surrender that I'll be talking about tonight, and that's uh, the path and the paradox piece. <clears throat> so I want to give you just an overview about what um, I'll be talking about tonight and, and what we'll be doing. <clears throat> and then I'd like to just dive right in. So at first, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about what is surrender uh, and why do we even want to surrender? Seems like a pretty good question. And how do we practice surrender? And after I've shared a bit about that, we're then actually going to move into uh, a dyad exercise. And so for for those uh, people here that haven't done a dyad exercise, Um, It's going to be uh, pairing up, so groups of two, and we're going to be uh, doing an exercise, and it's really going to be practicing what I'm talking about tonight. Um, And I'll give you some questions uh, that you will uh, practice with uh, in your diet and in your pairings. And then after that, I'd like to open up the room just for sharing, so to hear a little bit about what you discovered in the dyads, what you discovered in the sharing, and how the practice was. I'll also open it up for questions. And then I'd like to end with, what can we take away from tonight? 
really how can we put some of this into practice. And I can uh, share a little bit about my experience um, with this topic. It's something that uh, has been part of my practice for a um, little over a year at this point. And when I sat down um, to put together this talk, um, I was really struck by um, how vast this landscape is. And just an appreciation for um, the breadth of this topic of surrender. Uh, and so I don't um, proclaim to be the expert on this topic by any means, which is why I think the dyads and the sharing where we actually go into the practice is going to be very rich. Um, that being said, I do think there are a few things that I'd like to share with you at the outset, um, just to, um, to frame it and to give some context to, to what we're talking about. So I'm going to start with uh, a poem. And uh, this poem is um, it's actually about a figure of uh, Greek mythology. And um, it's the poem about Sisyphus. And so for those of you who haven't heard of Sisyphus or don't know uh, the story of Sisyphus, uh, Sisyphus was a Greek king uh, who was condemned by the gods, mostly Zeus, uh, to repeat forever um, a pretty miserable task. And the task that Sisyphus was given was pushing a boulder up a mountain, uh, trying to uh, push this boulder all the way up to the top. But every time he got close to the top, the boulder would come rolling back down to the bottom, and he'd start again. So it was this task again and again of pushing this boulder up the mountain, always trying to get it to the top. But just right at the moment that it almost got to the top, it would come hurtling down. So the poem is, uh, it's actually a retelling of the myth of Sisyphus. And I'm sure some of you have probably heard this before. Uh, but this is <clears throat> the myth of Sisyphus as retold by the poet translator Stephen Mitchell. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic mortal hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. So the poem is really talking about um, this realization that Sisyphus doesn't have. There's something that he's not realizing as he's stuck pushing this rock. And what is it that he doesn't realize? Well, I think that for each of us here, we can uh, appreciate that <clears throat> in this poem, the boulder, which is right in front of us, that we're always pushing up the mountain and always pushing against, really has to do with all of those things in our life that we stick to, that we're attached to. Um, or it can be the things that we're even pushing away. So there's that pushing into the boulder. So really the boulder represents all of those aspects of life that 
we think bring us happiness. We think that if we just hold a little bit tighter or if we continue to maybe just push it away, it'll go away, that somehow that's going to do it. We're going we're gonna to be happy. We're going to get rid of suffering. But as we all know, that doesn't really happen. We, we can't quite do that. The boulder, for some reason, is still a burden. So that leads to the second aspect, which is the failure to recognize this endless striving is actually deep suffering. So the whole process of pushing the boulder and striving and efforting to reach the summit where we can finally rest the boulder and say, that's it, we're done, we've reached the end. And then to have that thwarted each time, to have it come crashing down just at the moment that we think that we've gotten it. There's really the suffering in that. And we know that. We can feel that in our own life experience. We can feel that we think that if we just got through all of those to-do lists and we, we knocked off everything that we had planned in that day, life would have been great, but we didn't. We had a few things that didn't happen or something went wrong. Something came up and that boulder came crashing down again. So there's that real restless energy, that striving of constantly wanting to bring resolution, to put the boulder at the top of the mountain. And what I would like to suggest is that the biggest challenge for Sisyphus is that he doesn't know how to surrender. And so that really gets to this topic tonight that I'm talking about. And so the question is, you know, what is surrender and why do we want to surrender? Well, I think that we all have a sense of otherwise we wouldn't be here, that the possibility of stepping aside and letting the boulder crash down and going home, it exists, or at least we've heard that it exists. We've encountered teachings. We've heard from teachers and other great masters that they've accomplished somehow to step aside and let the boulder come crashing down. So surrender then takes on this quality of freedom and liberation. And I know that um, over the past um, several weeks, I think at this point, uh, Mark has been sharing uh, the teachings from Ajahn Chah, uh, who was a great uh, Thai forest meditation master. And uh, not to steal any of Mark's thunder, I'm just going to share a sentence uh, from the work that uh, some of you probably have been reading. And, and for those of you that haven't been reading it, I think uh, you'll get a taste of it just from this. And, and this is what Ajahn Chah has to say about surrender. And actually, when I was looking through the book, there's only a few places that he mentions it. And this is one of them. So Ajahn Chah says, the kind of understanding that comes from practice leads to surrender, to giving up. So in that sentence, we can start to unpack a little bit about what this surrender is. The essence of what Ajahn Chah is pointing to is to give up. And in our culture, this giving up often has very negative connotations. Uh, it has connotations of weakness uh, or failure. Um, it has uh, a sense of we weren't able to accomplish what we set out to do. We gave up. We were defeated. But 
for Buddhism and for Ajahn Chah, as we can see, because he's talking about this kind of understanding that comes from practice. He's pointing to practice, and he's saying that there's this deep understanding that emerges from our practice. He's talking about surrender not in this negative connotation, but really with all sorts of positive connotations. It's, it's this aspect of wisdom, and it's this aspect of liberation. So how do we reconcile these two? We have the Buddhist perspective that is saying surrender or giving up is really, uh, in essence, a form of wisdom or liberation. And then we have what we experience in our culture, which is that it's a form of weakness or failure. Well, I think at this point, it, it, it requires taking just a little bit of a, a, a detour into talking about the felt sense or the quality that we sometimes uh, can feel in our heart uh, when we're talking about surrender. And I'm talking about now surrender in uh, the sense that we often hear it uh, in, our, uh, in our culture. And the way that I've heard it, and I'm sure that many of you have heard it uh, in different ways, is that we've had enough. There's this sense of we've reached a limit or we've crossed an edge we can't carry on this way any further. There's something that we are now ready to give up because we know that the way that we were going isn't a way that's leading to greater happiness. It's a way that we've perhaps been on for months, years, or a lifetime. But there's that unsettling quality that really, for me, it shows up in the heart. It's that quality of... I'm at an edge, and I know that I'm at an edge, and I know that this is creating some suffering for me. I know that it's creating something that it, it's not leading to my happiness. It's not leading to a sense of spaciousness or freedom or liberation. It feels limiting. It feels small or constricting. So sometimes these edges, they can be small. They can be like the edge of the chair or the edge of the cushion. It's just a small edge. Sometimes they can be medium edges. Perhaps it's the high rung of a ladder. If we fall off the edge of the ladder, the top of the ladder, we're going to cause more damage to ourselves. So that perhaps is a medium edge. And then there are the huge edges. And those edges are almost as though it was the rim of the Grand Canyon. We're standing at the very precipice. And that if we lose our balance and we fall, we might not make it. So to make this a little bit more real, I'd like to just share um, an experience from uh, part of what got me onto this uh, topic of surrender. And it, it actually goes back to um, a huge edge for me. Uh, it's something that happened to me when I was uh, very young. Uh, and I was in uh, elementary school. And it was a normal day, uh, like any other day. And on that particular day, um, I happened to um, be in the midst of a plane crash. So I was in the school, and a plane uh, collided with a helicopter and landed uh, right on my elementary school. And there were uh, several people that died. Um, you know, there was um, the fire department rushing in to try to put out the blaze and the smoke as it was rising. And there was my mom traveling from 
uh, her work in downtown, not knowing whether or not I was dead or alive. And for me at that age, to be in elementary school, to handle an edge like that, it wasn't possible. It was an edge where I had to really um, respect. I knew that it was too big of an edge. It was something that I was too young and I, and I couldn't handle at that time. So I, I respected it and I, I um, allowed it to um, just be in my consciousness and in my body, but in a way that was under the surface, in a way that was still there. I knew it was there and I, I could feel it. I would from time to time have startle reactions. There was a loud noise. Um, and there were other signs that it was there. So I, I had some degree of awareness that it was under the surface, but I couldn't touch it. It was too big of a boulder. So 9-11 happened, and it was as though the lid just came right off. I was right back to that moment. So I was then in college, and there it was. I couldn't sleep. Every time I closed my eyes, I was having flashbacks to being back in the school. I knew what it was like to be those people that were in the towers. I felt the blast of the heat. I felt the earthquake that was the sonic boom that came from the explosion and really rocked the foundation. And I felt the fear and the other panic. And again, it was a time where I had crossed an edge. I knew that I had crossed an edge. And it was a moment where I wanted to surrender. I wanted to let go, but there it was. I couldn't. I, I couldn't quite surrender. It was too big. You know, I had practice at that point. I had mindfulness, but it was there was no way it could handle something of that size. So again, you know, I used the skillful means that I had available. I saw counselors. I did a lot of practice. I took time away to really try to calm down and quiet the mind. So fast forward uh, to when I was in the CDL4 program. I was uh, in New York, and this was on the 20th anniversary. And, um, sorry, did I say the 20th anniversary? I meant the 10th anniversary. <laughs> um, and I remember being um, in Garrison, which was the retreat center, and uh, knowing that I was close to New York, and being aware that it was under the surface and it was coming up, um, but also knowing that uh, I was in a different space. I was in a community. Uh, I was with a large group of practitioners. And it did come up. It came up in that retreat, and it came up in a very powerful way. And when it did, um, it actually happened at a point in the retreat where there was... Um, it was a story circle. I don't know for all of you in the room if you know what that is or if you've had the experience, but it's essentially where the entire Sangha sits around the outer edges. And then if you have a story to share, you move into the center and you share it. And everyone around you just bears witness and listens. So it was coming up for me. And I sat in that circle. And I shared the story. My mom was there, too. I actually invited her into the circle to share her half of the story, which I had never heard before. We had never told each other stories, but we did. We told the whole story from beginning to end. And the piece of it that I, what I want to extract from this story is really, it's the capacity of the heart 
It's that capacity of a larger field to hold something, in, particularly these very large edges that I'm talking about, these things where we've crossed an extremely large edge or we've fallen into the, that, the Grand Canyon. And that capacity of the heart, uh, it's so critical because we need to recognize when are we in a place where we can cross that edge? Because there are those edges that we need to respect. And as I was sharing, it took me a long time. And I crossed that edge several times with different experiences in my life. But it wasn't until that retreat where there was that larger field of an entire community who was there, was present with their heart, was present with what I was sharing, that it could be held in that container. So when we talk about this path of surrender, that's, I want to underscore that. I really want to underscore this quality of the heart. It's the quality of patience that the length of time that it takes, it could be months, it could be years, it could be our entire lifetime. But there's that quality of the heart that's patient. There's a gentleness, a real gentleness with ourselves, uh, knowing when we are at that edge and, and feeling into that a little bit and saying, is this a big edge or is it a small edge, something that I'm okay moving into? There's forgiveness <laughs> uh, because we are going to have times when we're at that edge and we're not skillful. And we know that we have a reaction and really in that moment what's, what's needed most is for us to forgive ourselves, to really bring in that heart and that quality. And then there's kindness, which is really just, it's almost that sense of an inner smile. It's just, it's okay. We can bring in or evoke this quality of this kindness. So we're like Sisyphus in a lot of ways, which is if we don't have that quality of heart or we don't have that capacity or we haven't, quali- and we haven't cultivated it, then we find ourselves again and again pushing the same rock up the same mountain, perhaps for the 10,000th time. And if we don't have that reserve or that presence or that quality of heart, then we are likely to fall into despair or shame or helplessness. And that quality of heart really is what gives us the courage and the capacity and the reserves to really be okay with pushing that boulder for the 10,000th time and saying, that's okay. I can be with it here right now, and I can learn from it. So in the Buddhist teaching, there's a domain of mindfulness where I think that this, uh, this wisdom of surrender or of giving up or yielding, knowing that we've crossed an edge and then allowing ourselves to succumb to that, to give up, is, it's really revealed most clearly in the mindfulness of the body. So this probably will help you understand um, why I decided to lead uh, that body scan at the beginning. Because this is really, um, in the Buddhist teaching, an area where this sense of yielding or giving up is revealed uh, most clearly. And as I mentioned in the meditation, the body is forever in the present. It can't be anywhere else. I mean, by its own limitations, it's stuck in the present. It's not like thoughts or emotions that can drag us to the past or the future. Um, It has to be in the present because it's limited in time and in space to this moment. Uh, And I think the best example of this is when we get sick. Uh, I mean, we all have the experience of where we're pushing through something and we're going very hard, and then we we fall sick. We end up um, 
lying in our bed, having no energy, feeling that just lethargy. And we have nothing that we can do at that point but give up because the body demands it. And we can't leave our body as much as we might want to. And then there's the ultimate giving up, which is death. We all have to face that at some point. Our body will die, and we have to give it up. So the body has this quality that's not like thoughts or emotions. It's really rooted in the present, and it's with the six senses that we then have this access point. So we know that the body is limited, but the Buddha says, within this fathom, long, sentient human body is found the whole world, its origin, its cessation, and the path leading to its, to its cessation. So the Buddha is pointing directly back to our body. He's saying that it's in this very body that we find liberation. We find the path out from our suffering. So how do we uh, cultivate this mindfulness of the body? Well, there's another uh, sutta. There's actually another teaching. Um, it's called the uh, Chapana Sutta, and it's in the Connected Discourses. And it's, it's in this section of the suttas that's on the six sense basis. So it's really talking about uh, all of those six senses that are part of the body. So this is the sutta. Suppose, monks, a man catches six animals of different domains and different resorts of living. A snake, a crocodile, a bird, a dog, a jackal, and a monkey, tethering each with a stout rope. Having tethered them with a stout rope, he fastens the ropes together in the middle. He lets go of them. Now, monks, these six animals of different domains and feeding habits would swing around and struggle, each trying to get to his natural domain. The snake would struggle, thinking, I'll get to the anthill, the crocodile, I'll get into the water. The bird, I'll fly up in the air. The dog, I'll make for the village. The jackal, I'll make for the charnel ground. The monkey, I'll head for the forest. Now, monks, when those six hungry animals grow weary, they would yield to the one that was the strongest, go his way and be under his power. Suppose a man catches six animals as before, and he fastens the rope together to a stout post or pillar. Then, when those six animals grow weary, they would have to stand, crouch, or lie down by the stout post or pillar. In the same way, monks, when a monk practices and develops mindfulness as to the body, the eye does not struggle to draw him towards attractive visual objects, nor an un an unattractive visual objects are repellent to him. The mind does not struggle to draw him towards attractive objects of thought, nor are unattractive objects of thought repellent to him. This, monks, is restraint. Tethered to a stout post or pillar, monks, denotes mindfulness as to body. Therefore, monks, this is how you must train yourselves. We shall practice mindfulness as to body, develop it, make it our vehicle, our dwelling place, our resort. We will build it up and undertake it thoroughly. This, monks, is how you must train yourselves. So we have these two um, 
pieces. We have this very famous um, quote from the Buddha talking about the fathom long body as the entirety of the universe and the path, ultimately, for liberation. And then we have this sutta that's really talking about these six animals that are our six senses, that when we imagine as though they're untethered, they're just kind of out there, and they're, they're all entangled with the ropes, they all pull in different directions until they get tired, and then one of them, whether it's the mind or the eyes and the visual field or hearing, that drags the other ones with it. And it's almost like this, this mess of rope and, and animals being tugged in one direction based on whichever sense is most dominant. But then the Buddha points to this post. He points to this, this pillar that if we use as the anchor, we use as the point of tethering each of these senses, we then have this vehicle for insight. We have this vehicle for real wisdom. Because what happens is the animals struggle against the post and then they become still. So that's this, this practice of mindfulness of the body. And that's part of what I was uh, invoking with the meditation. It's really this sense of coming back into the body and resting with it, staying with the body, the sensations, just bearing witness to it and feeling it from the inside out. So even as I'm talking right now, I can be aware of just a subtle amount of my attention still in my body. I can feel the sensations even as I'm talking. I can feel my jaw moving. I can feel just the weight of the body sitting on the cushion. I can have that reference point of the body still in my awareness even as I'm continuing to engage with the outside world. And this is what the Buddha is pointing at. He's talking about this as that post or as that anchor. Because when we get untethered, we fly out of the body. We fly into the mind. We fly into the emotions. And we're like the bird that takes off into the sky or the crocodile that takes off. We're just gone. So it's that post, that tethering, that really brings us back. And often we find that the body is something that's excluded from the path. We think of the body as somehow, well, yeah, that's very nice, but you know, really if I quiet my mind and I have a big open heart, that's it. That's what I really need to do. And the body seems to get left out. Um, and this is really bringing us back. And this is ultimately this path of surrender. So when I'm talking about giving up, that giving up is found in the wisdom of the body because it knows it. It knows it because it's subject to decay. It's subject to change. It's limited in time and space. It has to yield. The body must yield. So the wisdom of this is in the body. So what's the paradox piece? I've talked a little bit about the path and the path being really the mindfulness of the body. Well, the paradox is that the more that we try to surrender, the more that we're pushing up against that boulder. So, and I, again, I think a very common experience that we probably all have is uh, if we're trying to sleep, you know, if we have this restless mind or we have this restless emotion and we're lying in bed and we're thinking, it's two o'clock in the morning, I need to go to sleep, I've got an important meeting tomorrow or I've got this to do or I've got whatever, whatever our life story is, and we can't sleep. And yet we try and try and try and try and put ourselves back to sleep, but we, we, it doesn't matter. The more we try, the more restless we become. And so that paradox is really being with the body, being in the body, with the sensations, and not pushing against another boulder, which is trying to change the body experience or trying to change how it is. We really come back to that post or that pillar in the body. 
And that's what that practice uh, that I was leading at the beginning is really doing. It's bringing us back into not the concept of the body, but the sensations and resting with it. The other aspect that comes out here is really, again, it's the heart. And the heart piece is the patience uh, that's required because it is paradoxical, which is that this surrender, we don't know when it will happen. It unfolds in its own time. It's like the butterfly in the cocoon. If we break open the cocoon and try to pull out the butterfly, it'll die. We, we can't do that. We have to allow it to emerge in its own time. And that's that quality of the heart that's the patience. It's also this quality of the heart to really come back again and again and again and to really be kind and gentle with that. So we have both this path and this paradox. And that's what I'd like to now explore um, in diets. So what I'd like you to do is um, just find somebody that's close to you um, and get together in a group. And the way that this exercise is going to work is we're going to be practicing being anchored in the body. So this is the direct experience of what I've been talking about. And so I really want you to get a taste of this. And the way the diets are going to work is one person is going to ask a question. And there are two questions. So I'll give you one first, and then I'll ring the bell, and we'll do the second one. And as the person is asking the question, the other person is going to respond. But the person that's asking the question is resting in the body really staying with the body, feeling it, really being inside of it, being with that post or that pillar. And the person that's answering the question is doing the same thing. And you'll probably find, I find at least, and maybe you'll find it a little bit differently, that when we talk and when we give the answer, we tend to go out of the body. And so it's a little bit more of a practice to stay. So notice how it's different when you switch roles, how when you're asking the question and when you're answering the question, how is it qualitatively different? Um, so at this point, I'll just invite you to um, find another person and just introduce yourself and um, sit facing each other. You don't, if, you, if it doesn't feel comfortable to fit, sit facing directly, you can just face a little bit to the side. Oh, we odd. So for odd, well, we could do the dyads. The two of us will do it. <coughs> so the first question, and so just maybe take a moment and decide who's going to be uh, asking the question and then who's going to be answering. So just maybe take a minute to, to figure out who wants to do that. Uh, I'll ask first. Okay, so now that you've decided, I'm going to give you the question. So whoever's asking the question, this is the question. It's going to be a repeating format. So you'll, you'll ask the question, and you'll pause, and you'll allow the person to just respond. And when they've responded, just say, thank you. And then you ask the question again. And then they'll give their answer, and then you say, thank you. And you just do that, and you'll find that there's a rhythm to it. There's a real natural rhythm to it. So the first question is, what boulder are you pushing now? That's it. What boulder are you pushing now? 
Okay, so we'll all, um, I'll allow each, uh, you know, just, you can ask that question, I'll ring the bell, and that'll be the signal to switch. So what boulder are you pushing now? Taking a moment again to let that drop, let the questioner to just let that go, drop back into the body for a second, just notice how the body is now. And then for the person that was responding, the same, just dropping, coming back into the body, noticing how it is right now. So now the questioner becomes the answer. So now we'll switch roles. Same question. What boulder are you pushing now? And really staying with the body, both as the questioner and as the answer. So what boulder are you pushing now? drop for a second and uh, coming back into your body and just pausing and just noticing how it is. How's the body right now? Are we still in our body or did we lose ourselves? Did we lose ourselves in the conversation? And if we did, that's okay. Just coming back again to being in the body and noticing the sensations. So now I'm going to give you the second question. And the second question is, how can your practice help you to step aside? So the person that asked the question at the very beginning is going to be the questioner. And then the person that answered at the very beginning is going to answer. So we'll do that again. And really, again, the, the point of this exercise is to, to ask the question, but more importantly, to be in the body, to really practice being grounded, particularly because I think when we do this type of exercise and conversation, we tend to lose that sense of the body. So really just staying with the body as much as we can. How can your practice help you step aside? Thank you. 
Again, just letting the words drop. Going back into the body once again. And if we're already there, then just resting in the body. And if we've gone out of the body, then it's another opportunity to practice, to just come back. So now changing roles. go. And this time, just taking a moment to thank your partner. <laughs> so down, just bowing deeply and saying thank you. And thank, thank you for the sharing. Thank you, Mark. And then just, uh, just coming back. Um, so you can rotate however you want or find a comfortable spot. <clears throat> And so at this point, uh, I've talked a lot. <laughs> and I think that there's a lot of collective wisdom in this room, um, particularly, uh, hopefully, that came out through the dyads and just exploring some of this. Um, so I'd like to open up um, and kind of widen the field a little bit so that we can learn from each other. And you can ask questions if you want, and I'll do my best to answer them. Or perhaps somebody else has an answer, uh, because I'm not the expert by, by any means on this topic. Um, so let's just start with that. Is there anything that anybody would like to share from the dyads or just from the experience? I noticed that, that cadence and the rhythm when you're the question asker um, was kind of meditative. And after a while, I started to pay attention just to the direct sensation of the words. I mean, the sound of the words. Like I stopped really thinking about what I was saying as much since it was on auto. It was, that was kind of programmed in. So I could just focus on the sensation of hearing. Mm. But it wasn't in an escapist sort of way. It was more like that was an anchor. Mm. And can you say a little bit more about that anchor? What was the feel of that anchor as you were doing that? What did you notice? Well, rhythmic. <laughs> rhythmic, yeah. Rhythmic. You mentioned that. Um, well, it's hard to it's hard to explain. It's just a direct experience in hearing. I don't know. I don't know how to. I don't know any words besides that. Mm. Really. Mm. Just that the meaning of the words dropped away somewhat, mm. and just the quality of the sound is what I was able to pay attention to. And when you say that you were paying attention, if you don't mind, if I can continue to, <laughs> you can tell me enough is enough. Uh, but when you were talking about that um, paying attention, 
um, there's a piece that I'm, I'm hearing, but I may be putting words in your mouth, which is that there's the ability for the attention to both rest with the process of hearing, but then to still be active externally. So you're still engaging in an activity, but you're still able to have some portion of the attention that's staying. Yeah, that's what I meant when I, when I said the, the action. I was less focused on... I was, I was focused somewhat on, on the asking, but that was equally balanced with paying attention to the sensation. <clears throat> And I'll, I'll ask you one more question, yeah, and I'll let you go. So, how is that compared to um, just everyday life? So, when you think about this exercise right now. Well, usually in everyday life, if I'm asking a question or having a conversation with somebody, um, I'm acutely aware of how what I'm saying might be affecting them. Usually, in a way, so that I don't judge negatively. Mm. So, I have like this sort of like alert siren kind of going off in my mind, um, and that just fell away. Mm. So that's the difference for me. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, and so what you just shared um, there for me is really, it's that, that direct experience of when you notice that the judging or the, the wanting to be perceived a certain way can be dropped, it can be let go. Um, and, uh, you know, I definitely have that same operation of the mind, right? We all have it. It's that, that quality of, you know, there's something that we're, is happening in the interaction, and when we can tune into that and we come back, um, I also sometimes feel a real sense of restfulness. You know, it's just a sense of, okay, I don't have to do that. You know, I can just, I can really rest and be okay. It's okay. So thank you. Well, I noticed um, a couple things about my body, um, and it might have come over from part of it came over from earlier before we started questioning. But I noticed sort of a tightness in my in back, and then if I remember to stress, I didn't really believe in that. So just that it felt consistent, straight away. And then I noticed myself kind of wiggling sometimes, like kind of. It, it was kind of like a bubbly, happy feeling, and I'd wiggle my hands or wiggle my toes, you know, along with a question or an answer. Um, so, um, it just kind of went along with my body. It, it, you know, sort of like a puppy wiggling or something, you know, a happy mood expresses itself in the body. That's <laughs> And when you were speaking, were you asking the question or were you answering the question when you were uh, wiggling? I, I think I especially noticed when I was asking. When you were asking. Mm. And so what was it about the asking? And maybe it may not be clear, and that's okay, that created that wiggling or that happy tone that sort of arose. You know, if you're asking about Different. Like I, I was sometimes aware of um, my voice coming out differently. Mm. Um, you know, different emphasis on the words or the or songs and the answer questions. And 
I certainly felt curious about the answer that would come every time, and it almost was, you know, something new. <laughs> you might have answered the same thing every time, but he didn't. <laughs> Even if he had, it just might have sounded different every time. It <laughs> had a different meaning. <laughs> so maybe the question even had a different meaning every time. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. So what I'm hearing in that is really, uh, you know, you're speaking to that curiosity, um, that interest that naturally arises. And we can feel that. I mean, there is there's that sensation, and you're, you're describing it. I mean, we all have maybe a different experience of that. Um, but for you, that sensation of that curiosity was it was almost this movement of the body. And it's kind of like what we see when a dog is wagging its tail. You know, it's just happy, right? It's just moving its tail. There's that sense of that curiosity, that excitement, and that engagement with, with another thing. Um, so that, again, is another experience of the body as we're, uh, as we're in interaction and we're in, in relationship. So thank you very much. I was um, struck at how therapeutic the question was and um, how different molders showed, showed up every time we met. And uh, it was really intriguing to me how it was answered. Um, then when I answered the same question, I noticed how easy it was for me to get out of my body mm. and get blocked. Mm. But when I was So there's two pieces that I'm hearing, um, and um, one of it is really that uh, the question, even though it's the same question every single time, it's different in every moment, right? So as you were pointing to, it's really, you know, there's a different boulder each time. So, it, you know, in the, the poem and the idea of Sisyphus, you know, we think of it as one boulder, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's a different boulder every time. And But there's that sense of the question really... You know, it brings us back to that sense of, well, what boulder is it right now? Um, and then the other uh, piece that I was really hearing, uh, which is something that I feel in my own experience, which is that, uh, you know, when I'm in conversation or when I'm uh, answering something, I tend to leap from the body, right? It tends to go up. It's almost, and we probably all have a different experience, but it, for me, it's, it's sort of like moving up, and it's like, okay, so consciousness is here, and I've got, I've got to answer this question, and, you know, and, and I can't, and unless I slow down a little bit, and maybe just introduce a subtle pause, then I'm disconnected. I'm like a floating head, and I don't quite drop back down into the body. And I lose something. You know, I lose uh, a part of what I'm able to express when I'm not grounded, as you said. Thank you so much. I noticed that when I was answering the question, I was in my body until I had to start thinking of what I wanted to say. Mm. And I'm looking back, that happens when I'm home, okay, when I know what I want to say, when I have to start thinking about an answer, then I'm not in my body. Mm. 
And so you're noticing there's that disconnect, right? So it's almost as though when you engage one process, the thinking mind, the other one shuts off. Interesting. Yeah. All of them. And so, and does it go out? I mean, you're moving your hands this way. Does it? Does it really feel like it's? Yeah. It does. And did you have a sense, either as the questioner or as the answer, where you could play a little bit at that edge and perhaps have just a moment of having both of them operate at the same time? So afterwards. And what do you mean afterwards? What? <laughs> so reflecting back on this, yeah. it became obvious. Interesting. Yeah, and that's you know, that's yeah, it's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that because that that is there's this powerful energy, right? That just it pulls us out, and and uh, unless um, I mean, it's just like any other meditation practice, right? It's anything we can cultivate anything in, in mindfulness, but. If we can cultivate being anchored in the body, then it perhaps gives us the ability to stay with it a little bit uh, and to not, you know, do that um, common reaction, which is to go out. Yeah. So I, I really, as you were sharing that, I could, you know, I could feel that my own tendency to just go out and not be with it. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. I, uh, it was. I felt more. Less, less grounded when I was having to answer the question. And I think um, when I think about that, you know, when you talk about the, the six animals or the six senses, I think that's what's happening. It's starting to pull me out. And I, um, so I'll have you know, feel my emotions. I'll get nervous. I'll, you know, like I'm talking about something very personal. And, and you know, or then I'm like, you know, looking around the room and Sure, you know, it's like all of these things start to um, distract me from being in my body. And then I would take a breath and feel like it. I think that sense that you're talking about, where you're about, like I'm up here, and I take a breath and I can come down to you know, touching the, the earth again. But it's, I, I notice I really have to. Spending most of my time not being that moment, that most of my time spent, like, you know, as soon as I take a breath and let it out, I'm like, being able to pull out again into, um, you know, all of my senses. When I, was, uh, when I was listening, it was a little easier to hold the space. hearing and did you find yourself when you said that you almost felt the, uh, the ground or you talked about kind of touching the ground or you brought that image in? Uh, did you have a sense of that? I or? mean, yeah, then I, I, I could feel my, you know, just feel the sensation of sitting on the cushion. Yeah. As opposed Absolutely. to being lost in my thoughts or, or feeling more of, um, you know, some kind of nervousness in my, you know, my heart or whatever. 
phrase always comes to mind, or keeps coming to mind. Um, Hema Tobin said something about living with uncertainty, you know, and I kept really thinking about that. You know, not kind of a sense of groundlessness, but to me, the surrender was like being okay with that, like a sense of not knowing and being okay. The breath helped me to do that. Yeah, thank you. And uh, what I'm hearing, or the way I'm hearing it anyways, is just there's um, really that sense that when we are with uh, the body, there's um, that feeling that it's we're supported in the sense that it's okay, right? That we have, even though we don't know, the cognitive mind is spinning or the emotions are running amok, there's still sort of a deeper ground that we can tap into, right? There's something that's at a more fundamental level that it's all okay. It doesn't matter, if, you know, if I say the, the most terrible, embarrassing answer or the most pithy answer. I mean, there's just this, yeah, you're still here. You're still in this body, right? There's still this deeper ground. And, uh, and so, you know, the image that for me has always been so powerful is that moment where you see, you know, touching the ground, right? There's that moment right before enlightenment of touching the ground where we're rooting down. We're really rooting down in that moment. And that's what I'm hearing uh, in some of what you were saying. And then the other piece that I was hearing is really around this uh, receptivity, this quality of uh, the hearing process, which is it's a natural receiving, right? It's a, it's a natural process of the sense to be in that receptive mode, right? I mean, if I were to ring the bell and ask you to not listen to it, the only way you could do that is if you cover your ears. There's no way that you can stop the process of hearing. I mean, it's a way of naturally being uh, receptive and being back in the body. And so I think that's a wonderful insight because then you know, how many times during the day are we listening to somebody else? And is that sort of the invitation then to listen and drop down and really get grounded and touch, touch the ground? Thank you. So... Um, I'd like to, um, if there's more, share and continue to share, or just open it up for questions uh, or reflections. And if there aren't any, that's OK. We can end just a little bit early. Um, but uh, I did want to make uh, just sort of uh, a space to be able to ask questions if there are any. We usually wrap it up about a quarter to a tenth to, so there's time for oh. people to come up and greet you and have a little reception, too. So. Perfect. Well, that's, yeah, I'll surrender to that. That's great. <laughs> I was thinking I had 15 minutes left. I was like, oh boy, that's a long time. Uh, that's great. <laughs> Thank you. 
existence of the body and the dramatic training part. But I think that it's, that it's always a little bit of a struggle to move into the body since it's so much easier to just live in the mind. Yes, thank you so much for bringing that into the room because I think that that's, um, that's a very powerful uh, insight and it's also a voice um, that's uh, just as important as you know all these other aspects, which is that there can be, uh, particularly if, if we have trauma, you know, there can be, whereas we're speaking about just that knowing or that awareness of that the body will decay. And so that brings up, that can actually coming into that, that can bring up angst, it can bring up fear, it can bring up this, as you said, betrayal. Um, and that that's not always a sense of, um, of being a place of refuge, right? It can feel as though the body in of itself um, isn't necessarily a safe place. And... Um, that is just as important as an insight as um, you know, feeling that the body is a complete refuge, right? Because it's both of these. It's got this, that's this paradoxical quality of when we are in the body, as you said, you know, we can't live our life, or we, many of us do, or try to, to live our entire life in our mind, and it spins us in all sorts of directions and we get thrown around, or live in the emotional space. So there's a way that if we're not tethered to the body, we can just, we're gone. Right, um, but then the paradox is that when we are really rooted in it, we have that deep sense of that the body isn't always going to be here. It's going to pass. It too will decay. And so, how do we be with that? You know, and, and I heard a piece in there that um, it sounds like um, there's an exploration, right? And it's you're introducing that quality of the heart uh, of really saying that. So this, this is how it is, but you're also aware that living in the mind in of itself is not, you, know, you can't, we can't do that, right? I mean, we could try, but there's something that's not quite fulfilling in that. And so then between the mind and the body, what's left is the heart, right? And so when we bring in that quality or that, that real um, opening, uh, that deep sense of compassion, of recognizing that the body itself is going to decay, but not being able to fix it. And can we be with that open heart in that capacity? Yeah, that's, thank you. That's a very powerful insight. So, um, I'd like to just close by dedicating the merit, which is um, to really just take a moment um, and um, to reflect on how lucky we are to be able to practice. I mean, we're all practitioners, right? And um, to really um, appreciate that and to have a sense of gratitude around the fact that we still have our body, that we have these practices of mindfulness, all the ones that you've learned uh, throughout your time as a practitioner, to really find a way to step aside and let the boulder come crashing down and to go home. And so with the story of Sisyphus, he's not. He's forever, we can almost just imagine him still on that mountain pushing that boulder, right, forever. I mean, the, the myth of Sisyphus is that he's forever there. 
And I would argue that part of why he's forever there is because he's not in his body. If he was in his body, he would realize that he's tired, he's sweaty, and he loves that rock, but he wants to step aside and go home. He wants to rest, but he's not doing that because he's not in his body. So um, let's just take a moment to really be appreciative and to just you know feel that, to feel that in the body, that sense of appreciation and gratitude. Uh, and then let's radiate that out. So I invite you to just come back into the body, have that sense of appreciation, gratitude of all that was shared here tonight and all that we learned together. And just imagining as though all of that goodness, all of that beauty, as though it were just a drop. A drop in a larger ocean of love and understanding. And we add that drop to this ocean, not just for ourselves, but making sure that we include ourselves, but for the benefit beings. So that they too may walk this path of love and understanding. And we offer it in the service of all those beings that are working for the liberation and freedom from suffering. So holding that intention, feeling it in the body. And I'm just going to ring the bell three times to send that out in all directions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.